If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. I'd invite you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 12. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 29 of Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. Thank you. It is truth. Thank you that it speaks to us. And I pray this morning that we will be different because of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God has spoken to us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And here in this passage of Hebrews, we have a strong warning. And if we, like the Israelites, reject his merciful word, then we will not escape his coming judgment. This is a passage of scripture that is um, vivid because it gives a strong word of warning against those who reject the gospel and it reveals to us that God is a consuming fire. I don't know if you're familiar with Marcionism or not, unless you're like a theology nerd, you're probably not, but um, I happen to be a theology nerd, so I am familiar with it, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Marcion, Marcionism. During the second century of Christianity, Marcion, who was a heretic and eventually excommunicated, stressed that there was total incompatibility between the Old and the New Testament. He believed that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament had a radical discontinuity. So what Marcion did was to create a new Bible for his followers that had no Old Testament and a New Testament that was kind of hacked up, which uh, only had one of the Gospels, which was an edited version of Luke, and then 10 select Pauline epistles, excluding what, we, what are known as the pastoral epistles that Paul wrote. He wrote a book entitled The Antithesis, which proposed contradictions between the Old and the New Testament, which Tertullian wrote a response entitled Against Marcion, which was a five-volume refutation of what Marcion wrote. Now, you might wonder why I bring this up. Why do we need to know about Marcionism? Well, because Marcionism... This idea that the Old and the New Testament are not compatible with each other has never really died out. In fact, this heresy is still alive today. People still wish to separate the crude and primitive parts of the Old Testament from the New Testament. In fact, there are thousands today who reject the Old Testament either formally or in practice. Scholars are advocating even today for the rejection of the Old Testament. However, we believe that both testaments are the inerrant, infallible word of God. We must understand that, yes, the New Testament gives a fuller revelation of who 
God is. And yes, we no longer live under Old Testament law. However, the God we worship is the same God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. However, the problem is that so many Christians are so ignorant of their Bible, especially the Old Testament, that they have a false idea of who God is. And they have it stuck in their head that God is a deity that died in order to meet their needs. In fact, that's what is often proclaimed in American Christianity. That Jesus, the Son of God, who is God, came and died on a cross, rose again on the third day, is seated at the right hand of God in order to meet your need. That's heresy. That's a false idea of who God is and who Jesus is and why he came. Sin is minimalized or ignored. And the result of this is people who supposedly know Jesus, but they have no idea who God really is. And so they are Marcionites and heresy invades our churches. So what do we do? Well, we preach the whole counsel of the word of God, which means we preach Mount Sinai where God is a consuming fire. We have this vision of a blazing mountaintop cloaked in darkness, lightning flashes, trumpets are blasting, the ground is shaking as God delivers the Ten Commandments in the previous verses. That is the vision of Mount Sinai. God is perfectly good and God is perfectly holy and he radiates wrath and judgment against sin. God can't be approached. That's Mount Sinai. You see, flaming Mount Sinai reveals to us who God is. It shows us that God is holy and that we cannot approach him. But we don't just preach Mount Sinai, do we? We preach Mount Zion, like last week. It is on Zion that we see God's love. We see the Son of God. And we see Him taking all of His people's sins on Himself. Scripture says He became sin. We look to the cross and we see God the Son dying for our sins and extending forgiveness to all who believe in Him and trust in His work alone for salvation. What a vision we are given on Calvary. God nailed to the cross with His arms wide as if He's ready and willing to embrace all who come to Him. His blood spilling to the earth, speaking a better word than the blood of Abel as we looked at a few weeks ago. We see the consuming love of God at Calvary's cross. See, both Sinai and Zion reveal who God is. They can't be separated from one another. God is not the God of one mountain. He is the God of both mountains. We must see him as a consuming fire and we must see him as consuming love. This is what will save our soul from eternal damnation. What do we do? We have to heed the warning. The warning that's even given here in this passage in Hebrews. God gives this warning. And the author of Hebrews specifically gives this warning because he can, he's concerned for the readers who profess faith in Christ and that they were in danger of abandoning Christ under the threat of persecution. Remember, we've said all along that the Hebrew church was facing the threat of persecution and they were thinking, well, why don't we just abandon this and go back to the old way of doing things? And so he gives this final warning. He's making an argument here from what is the lesser to the greater. If those that are under the old inferior covenant incurred God's judgment for their disobedience, how much more will we be judged if we neglect Christ? That's the argument he's making. If the signs of God's presence were frightening when he shook Mount Sinai, how much more when he shakes all of creation? However, we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken and our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, our response is to be one of obedience. So let's break all that down this morning. The first thing I want us to notice is what we see God does. 
what we see God does. Throughout the book of Hebrews, over and over again, we have seen the author stress the superiority of Jesus Christ. He says uh, early on that he's the better Moses, he's the better Aaron, he's better than the angels, he's better than the old covenant, he's superior to all those things. The point, of course, is that Jesus is the best of the best. That he is the only way to heaven. So why would you try to get to heaven in any other way? Because he is the only way that you can possibly get there. That's what the author of Hebrews stresses over and over again. So that is what he's saying here. He's letting the people know. If you possess something of of great quality, why in the world would you want to give that up for something that's inferior? And over and over again, we see this emphasis on what Christ has done. And what is incredible is what Christ has done for us. And I believe the author maintains that focus here in these verses. And he does it in two ways. And talking about what Christ has done. First, he says that God speaks to us or what God has done. God speaks to us from heaven. God speaks to us. From heaven. So look at verse 25. So see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. All those are God speaking. Okay, so the verse plainly tells us that God speaks to us from heaven. Now, some people say that. This is talking about two speakers. One is Moses and the other is God because Moses warned Israel on earth and God warns from heaven. I reject that thought because of verse 26. It gives indication that the same voice that shook the earth then is the voice that speaks now. God is the only speaker here. The contrast is not between the voice of Moses and the voice of God. The contrast is God speaking on earth and God speaking from at Mount Sinai and God speaking from heaven now. Remember, like we said, this is what is known as um, in logic, he's making that argument from lesser to greater, which is an a fortiori argument, which is an argument from what is truly lesser is even more true greater. So at Mount Sinai, God spoke, right? That's what we know. And the Jews were so terrified that they begged no further message be spoken to them. According to verse 19, that same word for beg in verse 19 is repeated in verse 25, where it is translated refuse. Philip Hughes says this, their request at Sinai was a parable of their hardness of heart towards God that led to their ingratitude and disobedience in the wilderness. They begged that they would not hear no further message from God. And look at the result. What happened? They continued, Israel continued to refuse God's word by repeated disobedience. And eventually they had four decades of wandering in the wilderness and everyone who was 20 years and older died. A million plus corpses littered the desert because of their refusal to hear God speak. But now God has spoken in a greater way. What greater way? Through his son, Jesus Christ. And through the blood of his son, the author says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking now. God speaks to us from heaven. How will we escape if God is speaking to us from heaven? If that is how God dealt with the Israelites who refused to hear, hear his word. How is he going to deal with us for those who refuse his living word, his son? This is exactly what the author said. Clear back in chapter two. How will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The message to us is clear. God speaks to us from heaven and we must not ignore it. We better obey it because no one who disobeys will escape. No one who refuses the gospel will escape God's judgment. He is relentless. You can't 
You, you can't just refuse what he commands. You can take it to the bank. God is a consuming fire. His invitation to the gospel to forgive all your sins and to give you eternal life if you respond is the greatest invitation the world has ever known. What else could he do? What else could he do greater than sending his own son to shed his innocent blood as a penalty for every sinner who will believe in him? What else could he do? Therefore, because the gospel is the greatest privilege, anyone who refuses it, it's the greatest sin. If you have received the gospel, you you should be in awe and wonder of what God has done because you have the greatest possession of all time. In all the world, you have the greatest possession anyone could ever have. But not only does God speak to us from heaven, but we also read that God gives us an unshakable kingdom. God gives us an unshakable kingdom. Verse 28 makes it clear that we need to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. The kingdom of God is not a dominant theme through the book of Hebrews. It is mentioned and it is certainly alluded to, but it's not a dominant theme throughout the book. With that said, verse 28 clearly speaks about the kingdom of God and it reveals to us really several things. First, notice what it says. Let us be grateful for receiving. We have already received this kingdom, yet it is still to come in its fullness. That word received is what's known as a present participle, which means the implication is that we are in the process of receiving this kingdom. We've already come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, yet in another sense, we have not come to it in its final form. Its ultimate reality will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But also that word receive is an indication that we don't work to earn the kingdom. It's a gift that comes from God freely bestowed on all of those that believe. You receive it. You don't work to get it. You just receive it. Now he says that it is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This means it will outlast all other kingdoms. All kingdoms will ultimately face God's judgment and crumble and fall, but not God's kingdom. It's unshakable. It will remain forever. Listen closely. Every earthly kingdom that has ever been established has eventually fallen to other more powerful kingdoms. If we look at the history of the world, we see the rise and fall of kingdoms. Great men devoted their lives to establishing kingdoms only to die and have their kingdom fall. The only kingdom that lasts forever is God's kingdom. That's it. That's the only one that will last forever. For God's people, the response should be one of reverent gratitude and Worship when we gather on Sunday, the Lord's day, it is his day. We should be expressing gratitude to God for giving us the gospel and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. While all things around us look permanent, we think we, we look at things and we think, oh, well, that's a that's a permanent structure or a permanent building or or these things are permanent. It will pass away in an instant. But God's people will remain. Nothing can stop God's kingdom from triumph. His kingdom and its citizens will prevail. Therefore, we should be grateful. Because if you're a believer, you're a privileged member of his kingdom by the grace of God. And even if you're persecuted to death, God's kingdom will not be shaken. And we are heirs of the kingdom. And that's reason to rejoice. That's reason to come in here on Sunday morning and shout and sing and clap and raise your hand or do whatever. It's reason to rejoice because you are heirs of the kingdom of God. 
That's exciting. Do not forget these wonderful things that God does for us. Remember them and keep them before you. He speaks to you from heaven and he gives us an unshakable kingdom. May our eyes be fixed on heaven. Don't be like Esau. Right? He exchanged the eternal blessing for the temporary. Don't let go of the, of the heavenly for the worldly. Don't be so focused on the earthly kingdom that heaven suffers because you want to get all you can here on earth. It's not about your life on earth. You're not citizens of America. You, well, yes, I am. I was born here. Well, congratulations. You are now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's your identity. So our first major theme is what we see God does. But there's also a second theme or second idea here. And that's what we know as what we know as God is great. God is great. Now, many people would say, well, duh, pastor, we know God is great. I understand that we often say we know God is great. But do we really understand how great God is? Do we really get it? Do we comprehend that the God who speaks to us through the gospel is the same exact God who spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai? I think this text brings out just how great our God is. And I want us to focus in on two themes here. That the, that the scripture tells us here in these verses. First, that God's voice will shake both heaven and earth. We know God is great because his voice will shake both heaven and earth. When God spoke at Mount Sinai, the earth shook violently. The author of Hebrews writes about the event in verse 26, but then alludes to a prophecy that comes from Haggai chapter 2 verse 6. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, it says in Haggai 2.6. This is speaking in relation to the second coming of Jesus Christ, when all kingdoms in this world will be shaken to nothing. The point is that God's shaking happened before and it will happen again. He shook the earth at Sinai. He will shake the earth again. But this time everything will be shaking, shaken into disintegration because that is the power of God's word. He speaks it and it happens. He created the earth by his word and everything that we know will be destroyed by his word. The image of God shaking the earth and heaven is one that is frequently used in the Bible to refer to the final judgment. Isaiah writes, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. Again, Isaiah 24, he writes, He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the fountains of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a... Uh, it sways like a but it's or it sways like it but its transgression lies heavy upon it and it falls and will not rise again on that day the lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. Revelation 6, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell on the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us 
from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And who is he who can stand? Finally, Revelation 16 talks about a terrible final earthquake. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightnings and rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake that the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. The point of the earth and heaven shaken is pointing to a catastrophic judgment where the entire universe, all planets, everything that we know in the natural world will undergo a cataclysmic change. Now, I know we hear a lot of talk about climate change and whether we're denying science or not, blah, 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 blah. This is not climate change. We are talking about a cataclysmic, catastrophic, sudden change where all nature is destroyed and there is a remade heavens and an earth. Furthermore, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. He says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Oh, but here's the key. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. So when there's an earthquake in the Indian Ocean sparking a tsunami and 280,000 people die. Or when there's an earthquake in Haiti, one of the poorest places in the world, and over 150,000 people die. Those of us who survive should see it as the beginning of birth pains. What does that even mean? Well, I'm not going to try to take you through science or anything like that. But when a woman goes into labor, she has birth pains. I don't know if you know that or not. And that reveals that her pregnancy is what? Reaching its culmination. When a woman is in birth pains, the baby is coming. Okay? That's what it means. In the same manner, these natural disasters reveal to the inhabitants of the world that we need to be ready because there is a big event that is about to happen. Soon and very soon, God will speak and the earth and all heaven will shake as they have never shaken before. And all that will remain is the kingdom of God. Soon, God's voice will shake heaven and earth. So make sure that you're living in submission to the king of the universe who has control over all things before he speaks that terrifying word of judgment onto the entire world. That's what the author is saying. Get ready. Because one day, God will speak in all Heaven and earth will shake and everything you know will be destroyed. Not only will God's voice shake heaven and earth. I mean, that's a great God. By his voice, heaven and earth shake everything destroyed. But it says that he is a consuming fire. Verse 29 is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Where Moses warned Israel, um, he's given them a warning. So they would not forget God's covenant and end up falling into idolatry. And then he adds this. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Fire, again, is a frequent picture of God's powerful judgment throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 33, 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? 
Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That is the same verse that Jesus referred to in Mark chapter 9 when he described hell. The prophet Zephaniah writes, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord and the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Then in verses three through eight, he writes this. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms to pour out upon them in my indignation all my burning anger for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed john the baptist speaking of jesus his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the shaft shall burn with unquenchable fire luke 3:17 now, as I said in the beginning of this message, some would try to soften these verses by saying things like, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment, but the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and mercy. As if to say the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament, but they're the same God. The God of Sinai is the God of Sinai. Some would say, well, what about Peter? He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. Great verse, but we've got to keep reading, right? I love it when you just read one verse and kind of pull that out and be like, oh, well, look at this. We've got to keep reading because verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Listen, all these things included in verse 25 of our text is set forth as a warning to unbelievers. But for those of us who believe, we have the promise of verse 26. And they usher in the promise again from 2 Peter. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yes, God is great. His voice will shake heaven and earth. And he is a consuming fire. And this is to serve as a warning to unbelievers and as a promise to us that these things are the beginning of the fruition of the promise that he has given to us of a new heavens and a new earth. So I've seen what God does for us. We've seen how great God is. It would stand to reason that we have a responsibility of obedience. We have a responsibility of obedience. Now I know sometimes we don't like to talk about responsibility. In fact, often we don't want to take responsibility either. Have you ever tried to get someone to take responsibility when things go bad? Something bad happens. You try to get somebody to confess up, take responsibility for what happened. Nobody wants to take responsibility for that. I found that nothing is ever anyone's fault today. Nothing. It's someone else's fault. Well, they made me do that. No, they didn't. They didn't make you do anything. Nothing's our own fault. I don't know if you've noticed this, but no one ever takes responsibility unless something great happens. Then all kinds of people line up to take responsibility for that. Oh, that was my idea. I, I thought of that. If it fails, nobody thought of it. But if it's success, everybody thought of it. Here's the thing. We have played out for us what God has done. He speaks to us from heaven. He gives an unshakable kingdom. And we also have seen, uh, or we've shown how great our God is, that he will shake the heavens and earth. He is a consuming fire. So knowing that, 
then something is required. There is a responsibility for us. And that responsibility is obedience. There are at least four ways in which we need to be obedient that are mentioned here in these verses. At least four ways. First of all, we must not reject his words. We must not reject his words. When verse 25 starts off with, see that you, it means take care or to watch out for. It is the same command that he gave back in chapter 3 when he told them to take care that there not be an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. It means pay attention to what's going on because if you fail to do so, you will fall into the same sins that the Israelites fell into in the wilderness. So the author is saying, do not reject what the Lord is saying. The author of Hebrews has maintained that God is speaking and that God is a speaking God and we are not to refuse him or reject him. This is vital because today modern evangelism presents the gospel which God speaks to us as an offer to be considered instead of a command to be obeyed. The gospel is not an offer to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. The gospel is never an offer that someone is to consider. And we should not present the gospel in that way. But rather we present the gospel as an ultimatum. It is either to be received or rejected. It demands either you receive it or you reject it. That's what the gospel does. The gospel presented always produces a response every single time. Someone either hears it and believes it unto salvation or they hear it and they reject it unto eternal judgment. It is a command. It demands a response. It isn't something, oh, well, I'll consider that. No, you won't. You just made your decision. So the author is saying, here that we must not reject his words. But I don't think this is just in relation to the gospel. I believe it is about who God is and what he speaks today primarily through his written word and we must not reject it. So I'd ask you today, do you take care of yourself spiritually? Are you in his word being obedient to what you read? Listen, we're faced daily with spiritual dangers. Every single day that try to dilute our devotion to God. And we must refuse to allow that to happen. And living in the light that one day there's a cosmic judgment. We should be living out the word of God. Listen, he says, and... Um, Mark 13, 33, Jesus used the same Greek word when he said, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And he then goes on to give warning that he may come suddenly and find us asleep. And then he says this, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's what Jesus said. The whole idea is that we must not reject his words, that we must read them and be obedient to him, that we must be on guard. We must pay attention to what it says. And Jesus said, stay awake. Are you awake? Or is your Christianity a snooze fest of you rejecting his word out of neglect of reading it and applying it to your life? Stay awake, Christian. Stay awake. Not only that, not only we must not reject his words, but we must have obedient hearts. So in verse 25 says to us, do not refuse him who is speaking. The author's alluding to Israel's disobedience in the wilderness. While in the wilderness, they faced some hardship. Rather than giving God thanks for delivering them from slavery in Egypt, what they do? They grumbled and whined and complained and even threatened to return to Egypt. Sounds like us sometimes, doesn't it? Things don't go our way, so we whine and we complain and we threaten to go back to our old way of doing things. Or in the church, we threaten to leave the church because, well, we didn't get what we wanted. 
They should have joyfully endured the trials they faced and trusted that God, who had delivered them from slavery, would sustain them in the midst of their trial. But they didn't. The Hebrew church is facing persecution. Would they trust God to be faithful, the same God that delivered them from the bondage of sin? Would they trust that he will sustain them or will they return to Judaism? What about you? How do you react when God sends you a trial? Do you grumble and complain? Turn back to the world, the ways of the world? So all... I need to find the five steps to dealing with this problem, the five worldly ways to figure this out? Or do you obediently persevere trusting in God and serving Him knowing that He saved you from the miry pit of hell and has placed your feet on solid ground and that even in your trial He cares for you because in the midst of your trial it is ultimately for your good and for His glory. Do you have an obedient heart? Not only are we to have an obedient heart, but we must have grateful hearts. Look down at verse 28. It starts out with, therefore, let us be grateful. Some translations will say, let us show gratitude. The King James says, let us have grace. Now, it's possible that this means that we should not abandon God's grace that is found in Christ for the old covenant. However, I do not think that this is the case because the phrase in the Greek is speaking of being grateful and its meaning is to be thankful. Now, there is a connection between God's grace and being thankful. And that, of course, is because the God of grace or because God's grace, we should be thankful. We should be thankful for the grace that God has given us. This is not only to say that we serve God in some sort of a feeble attempt to pay him back for what he's done for us, that'd be impossible. However, our thankfulness is an overflow of our heart. We give thanks to God for what he's done for us. Our thankfulness is an act of worship towards an almighty God. We're saying, God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for guiding me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for sustaining me. We're not to be thankful only at Thanksgiving, but it should consume our hearts because you can't even believe all that God has done for you. Mainly this, that he has exchanged your sin for his grace. That should cause thankfulness. So we come with an obedient heart. We come with that grateful heart. And then finally, we must have reverent hearts. Look at the last part of verse 28. It says, let us offer God or to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Isn't it interesting that the verse says acceptable worship that would indicate that there is a kind of worship that is not acceptable. The main aspect of our worship is giving glory to God because it's due Him. So I'd ask, if our heart is not right, how can our worship be pleasing to God? If your heart's not right, how can your worship of God be pleasing to Him? How can it be acceptable? And what's singled out here as necessary for acceptable worship? What, what is singled out here saying this is acceptable worship, right? Is two words. Reverence and awe. How do we have that? Well, we should have a deep spiritual sense of the holiness of God. And a deep understanding of our vileness and our distance from God apart from Christ. 
We should understand, God, you are holy, and apart from your grace, I am completely separated from you, and your wrath rests upon me. But thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the grace I have in him. That should cause joy in us. It should cause reverence in us. It should cause us to stand back in awe and say, God, I can't even believe this. That's what it should cause us. You see, if we come into worship puffed up, with a sense of just how important we are to God's plan. Boy, good thing God has me on his team. He'd be in trouble. Glad he picked me. Didn't pick that guy over there. Or how important you are to his church. First Baptist Church better be thankful they have me. If it wasn't for my tithe, that church would fall apart. Really? You see, if you come in puffed up, you're filled with your own self-righteousness. Or you come in with complacency. Eh, sing another song. I bet I know what we're going to do this week. We're going to sing one song, then three songs. I'm going to give like I always give. I'm going to do what I always do. Right? Complacency. Then he doesn't accept your worship. Do you get that? That's unacceptable worship. That's rough. That means some of us this morning may have entered into this building we may have sung songs, we may have listened to the preaching of the word, and we may have done it in an unacceptable way of worship. Man, that should, that should eat us up. Let me just say this, nothing exposes our pride and fills our heart with a sense of utter insignificance as a sight and realization of the sovereignty of God. This is what happened to Isaiah when he cried, Who or woe is me? I am a man of unclean lips. It's what happened to Job when he beheld the Almighty and he said, Behold, I am vile. I marvel at the fact that God is so rich in mercy that he does not strike dead those who vainly come to him trying to deceive him with their lip service to God. Like, oh, look at me, God. Look how pretend I am. I am amazed that he hasn't even struck me dead for my complacency at time and my worship of him when my heart was far from God. Listen, we are to come with reverence and all of who God is. I can't think of anything more needed in our generation to understand who it is that we are to worship. We live in a perverse time that says, I'm going to come to God however I want to come to God. We are living in a time that says, you worship how you want, and I will worship how I want. And you can't tell anyone else that there is a right way or a wrong way to worship. Yet, this verse makes it abundantly clear that there is unacceptable worship to God. God rebukes flippant, irreverent worship that goes on in many churches today. We so often take worship so lightly and have an ungodly familiarity with worship. And we come to God as if we're equal with God, as if he's my homeboy, as if he's my buddy, and we conduct ourselves in a manner that shows little reverence, respect, or awe of who God is and the holiness of God. Reverence and awe are not incompatible with one another. They're not incompatible with having a grateful heart and loving His mercy. Our loving Heavenly Father indeed invites us to draw near to Him. But we must not forget that He is a consuming fire. 
We must not have a man-centered worship because then we're worshiping self and not God. And when we worship, we should have both Sinai and Zion in view. Approachable Zion with God's love and His grace and His mercy and saying, oh God, thank you for what you've done. And unapproachable Sinai where God is a consuming fire. And then we come with a reverent heart how we need to worship God in such a way. How you worship God is directly linked to how you view God. You will either view him as seen in scripture or you will make up a God in your own mind. And unfortunately, most people err on the side of being too chummy with God and casually make him out to be their buddy, not showing him reverence or being in awe of who God is. So we should worship God out of reverence for who he is in every aspect of our lives. And so I would ask you this morning, does a reverence and awe of God motivate you in every single thing that you do? Is your life characterized by reverence and awe of God? Like, God, I just cannot believe that you've done this. God, I can't believe that you're doing this. God, I can't believe that I have the privilege to walk into church on a Sunday morning and sing praise to you and give to you and hear a sermon. I can't believe it, God. I can't believe your grace. It's incredible. Is that characteristic of your life? In conclusion. Everything in our life hinges on knowing who God is and what God has done for us by his grace found in Jesus Christ. We've seen that God does great things speaking to us from heaven, giving us an unshakable kingdom. We've seen he's a great God that his voice will shake both heaven and he is a heaven and earth and he is a consuming fire. We've seen that because of who God is that, and what he has done, that we have the responsibility of obedience. We don't reject his word. We must have obedient hearts and grateful hearts and reverent hearts. So I ask you this morning. First, do you have a life that is surrendered to Christ? Do you know him as Savior? Have you placed your faith in him? If not, I would challenge you to place your faith in him today. Secondly, I would ask you, are you obedient? Do you obey his word? And is your heart one of obedience and gratefulness and reverence? If not, I would challenge you to repent and get your heart in the right spot that you would worship God with the right attitude and the right heart. And you can do both those things today. You can confess your sin and say, God, I need forgiveness and I need to come to know Christ as my Savior. And you can say, even in your pew, you can come up here and do it. You can come up here and say, Pastor, I, I need your help. I don't know what to pray. Whatever. I'm always available. And you can confess and say, God, my heart's not right. That's between you and the Lord. Let me give you that opportunity to respond here in just a minute as we sing a closing song. Let's close a prayer.